trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I take it you survived not only the uh, Thanksgiving holiday, but uh, you're currently hunkered down and during the uh, Black Friday combat shopping. I enjoy Thanksgiving. The food is an obvious reason why, but it's also great to catch up with family. But I'll tell you one thing I am absolutely not emotionally equipped to do. That is to go out and jostle with other shoppers and fight so that we can either score, you know, great deals or get our Christmas shopping all taken care of roughly a month in advance. I get it. It's a noble idea. But uh, frankly, I think that uh, I think man was meant to procrastinate until December 20, 23rd and very little is likely to change my mind. I'm kidding. But actually, I, I want to point your uh, attention to the article of the day because uh, this is one that you'll find in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. John Miltimore, this is from the archives at the Foundation for Economic Education, breaks down why Black Friday is called Black Friday. Most people really have no idea, myself included. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clue you in on why this is called Black Friday. John Miltimore says, look, I've never understood Black Friday, hordes of people scrambling to buy stuff on the busiest shopping day of the year. It sounds dreadful. I'm with him. Now, my wife is wired a little differently. She kind of digs that stuff. But instead of lazing in gratitude with a belly full of turkey and pie, people descend on stores in the wee hours to consume more. John says, no thanks. But there's no denying that it's a big deal. I think this article was published back in 2019, so this is before all the craziness. But he says, despite the holiday's popularity, most people still have no idea why Black Friday is called Black Friday. So once he started researching it for this article, he says, I'll admit I was a bit fuzzy on Black Friday's origins, and it turns out I wasn't the only one. For instance, he says, my wife had no idea. I asked one wicked smart friend. He was clueless. One young person I asked said he had heard that Black Friday stemmed from the slave trade. For the record, that's a myth, by the way. But you knew that, you know, the, the culturally sensitive would, would try to work that angle. So what's the truth? Why do so few people know the origins of a popular holiday? Well, first of all, he says, this isn't the first Black Friday. Several historic events have been dubbed Black Friday, including the Panic of 1869, which involved the Grant administration releasing a large supply of gold to spite speculators trying to corner the market. At least that's the official version. Anyway, all you really need to know is that gold prices tanked, fortunes were lost. But that has nothing to do with Thanksgiving or shopping. John Miltimore says, but it is one reason why people are confused about Black Friday. The bigger reason, though, is the origins of this Black Friday are organic and hazy. In fact, there are at least three competing explanations for why we call Black Friday Black Friday. For the record, anyone referring to the day after Thanksgiving as Black Friday is found, uh, the first record, rather, of, of, of this is found in an obscure magazine from the 1950s. And this was a reference to Americans playing hooky or skipping work on the Friday after Thanksgiving so they could enjoy a, th a four-day weekend. Now, the article was titled, What to Do About Friday After Thanksgiving. It appeared in, oh, I'm sure you had this one on your coffee table, Factory Management and Maintenance. 
<laughs> it's a periodical for engineers and factory managers. And it talked about the people, the problem of people not showing up for work after Turkey Day. Here's what it said. Friday after Thanksgiving-itis is a disease second only to the bubonic plague in its effects. <laughs> a little drama there, but okay. Uh, basically, John says, Black Friday was the 1950s equivalent of Monday after the Super Bowl. Everyone just called in sick. As a result, productivity tanked. Nobody really knew what to do about it, which is probably why so many companies just started giving workers the day off. Then, of course, he says, I'd never heard the hooky version of that. I always assumed it had something to do with the holiday's craziness. Now, he says, if you think I'm joking, and he's, he has actually a, a gif of, you know, the shoppers forcing their way into the stores, just craziness. But he says, since 2006, a dozen people have died in Black Friday stampedes. More than 100 have been injured. Most people assume this is why we call the holiday Black Friday, but they're not exactly wrong. Since everybody was playing hooky in the 1950s, I guess they had to do something, and for a lot of Americans, that meant, well, let's go buy stuff. This turned Black Friday into one of the busiest shopping days of the year, and in fact, the busiest in some cities, including Philadelphia. Now, not long after the phrase Black Friday appeared in factory management and maintenance, Philadelphia law enforcement started using the term Black Friday to refer to the floods of shoppers descending on the city between Thanksgiving and the Army-Navy football game on Saturday. Now, that was creating all kinds of headaches for cops, and John says we see the, this origin story in the first seeds of labor discontent associated with the holiday. The long hours, the high stress, strained public resources. Cops, of course, were forbidden from taking the day off. It was a double whammy, says Bonnie, Blake Taylor, Bonnie Taylor Blake, rather, a neuroscience teacher at University of North Carolina. She told CNN back in 2014, traffic cops would have to work 12-hour shifts. No one could take off. People would flood the sidewalks, parking lots, and streets. And the cops had to deal with it all. So they coined the term. Now, although the term was mostly used in Philly, some New Yorkers also complained about Black Friday. A report from 1961 mentions New Yorkers waiting in traffic through 13 changes of a single traffic light and bus drivers on strike. So in this narrative, Black Friday is chaos, consumerism, traffic congestion, and worker exploitation. Now, there's another explanation. This is probably the one that comes closest to what I had understood. Black Friday as merchants getting into the black. Black Friday sounds ominous. You would think that most merchants would kind of shy away from it. Oh, this sounds terrible. But to solve that problem, some of the stores out east got together in the early 1960s to rebrand Black Friday, Big Friday. Great idea, right? Well, it didn't take. In fact, nearly a quarter century later, Philadelphia department stores were still resisting the term which the media had attached to. Black Friday is a phrase that's sinful and disgusting, one local department store chairman told the Inquirer in 1985. Why would anyone call a day when everyone's happy and has smiles on their faces? Black Friday. Sorry, I think there's some subtext in there. And spending their money freely. <laughs> Though the term was not yet popularized nationally, the phrase had taken on a life of its own. Perhaps without realizing they were stuck with the Black Friday phrase, the back Black, uh, Black Friday label, rather, stores began to talk about Black Friday putting them in the black. Historically, stores recorded losses in red ink, profits in black ink. Now, that explanation suited retailers, and it matched their reality. It's a misnomer, but 20, 30 years ago, people did view Black Friday as the day that retailers started to be in the black after a year of not being in the black. That's according to Ray Hartgen, a retail analyst, analy <laughs> analytics expert at Retail Next. 
telling Vox all volume through the holiday season, all of that volume made them profitable retailers. So, as John Miltimore points out here, the historical narratives of Black Friday compete with uh, one another today in large part because they're part of a larger political narrative. Some see Black Friday as a day when greedy corporations exploit workers for long hours to make a profit from the consumer hordes. Others see Black Friday as a day when businesses make a killing offering blowout deals and consumers get to buy the next greatest thing. Well, in recent years, retailers raised the stakes by opening stores earlier and earlier. And in fact, this is where I'm going to jump away from the, uh, the article and just note the Black Friday sales all started before Thanksgiving ever got here. How do I know this? Well, because all of these companies were kind enough to uh, notify me by email. How many? Oh, I would guess probably about 50 a day by my count. I know every site that I've been on that has cookies, every time I've looked up a particular product, oh, you better believe I'm getting the Black Friday emails. Hey, don't forget we're you know offering this incredible deal. It's crazy. I mean, it used to be you waited until, you know, the early morning hours. People were lined up outside the stores. They would open at 5 o'clock, and that's when everybody would begin their combat shopping. Then somehow, I remember this over probably the last 10 years, that time got moved up to midnight. Then you'd have people, you know, have their Thanksgiving holiday and then go camp out in the stores, parking lot, waiting for midnight so they could crash the doors and take advantage of the, the Black Friday sales. Now, some of those sales start before Thanksgiving dinner is even on the table. I don't know. I get it. You know, people people need to make money. Businesses are doing the best they can. Times are not good. Okay, I think we can all agree on that, that uh, economically, we are not, uh, we're not rolling in, in the dough right now. There's a lot of debt. There's a lot of uncertainty, quite a bit of instability. So I, I understand the businesses wanting to get a jump on it. But it just seems like consumerism has kind of taken over Thanksgiving and especially the immediate aftermath of Thanksgiving. Look, if you love to shop, by the way, I wear an extra large jacket if you're you know, really looking to, to shop. Got a birthday coming up too, you might want to write down. Anyway, my idea is if you enjoy the shopping, please do, but let's not lose sight of the Thanksgiving holiday itself. Spending time with family, spending time with friends, enjoying good food, hopefully. How about this? Looking out for other people who might be struggling through the holidays? Hmm? A little something to think about. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So we got a lot of snow for Thanksgiving, which was interesting. I was smoking a turkey, so I got to get up early and get out there as the snow was getting started. And I think we probably picked up about four or five inches of snow over the course of the day. Tricky, treacherous roads. I mean, just the whole nine yards. It was a good day to stay inside, eat food, maybe watch a little football, and hang with friends. It It was a good day. All in all, a lot of moving parts. Sometimes, I hope I'm not the only one who feels this way, but sometimes the stress of getting together with family doesn't quite seem worth the amount of stress that we make it. So let me explain this. 
I would rather opt for being with family for holidays, you know, at least visiting them and, you know, spending time with them and doing things. I think that's, that's great. But it seems like we, we build Thanksgiving sometimes into this, this huge production. It's going to have all these moving parts. It's got to have this food and this, you know, seating arrangement. And anyway, it becomes kind of stressful. So I, I feel for those, especially uh, those of us who, believe it or not, I'm, I'm more of an introvert than, than not. You get me around, you know, groups of people, and I like to find someplace quiet to just kind of sit back and observe. I don't, I don't need to be in the conversation, but nonetheless, I enjoy simple. That's, that's kind of what I would, would lean towards. Now, some of the news that was coming out while we were celebrating of course, has to do with the January 6th footage that has been released thanks to the new Speaker of the House. And, of course, with this footage coming out, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that we see we were not shown, deliberately were not shown. It was not allowed to be admitted as evidence in the trials of people who have been sent to prison for years, a couple cases, decades. And it's, the truth is becoming clear, and it's an awful truth. The Democratic Party faked an insurrection to consolidate its power over the American people. Oh, I get it. That uh, sounds pretty strange and unhinged, but what, what else could it be? Robert Bridge has a great piece that was published on Lou Rockwell earlier today. He says, last week, more than 40,000 hours of January 6th Capitol Police security footage was released in the public domain that once and for all, blew a hole in the pro-Trump violent insurrection narrative so dear to the Democrats and to Adam Kissinger and, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Cheney. Was it Liz Cheney? <laughs> anyway, the two, uh, the two uh, rhinos. One question on countless Americans' minds following the release of the damning videos was, will all those men and women locked away as political prisoners for dozens of decades get another day in court? This is an important question, too. It's crystal clear that we were lied to. That evidence was kept from not just the defendants, but from the American public. In the case of the defendants, though, see, where have I seen this before? Oh, yeah, about uh, six years ago. Federal court, Las Vegas, the Bundy family. Why was their case dismissed with prejudice? It's because the prosecutors and the federal agents who set them up and tried to dig this pit for them to fall into withheld Brady evidence. They committed a Brady violation. They withheld what could have been exculpatory evidence. They lied and they were caught. In that case, the judge, who, by the way, was no fan of the Bundys and very much, you know, lived up to the part of being an Obama appointee, she was forced to say, look, this is, this is just wrong. It's, it's such an injury to justice that having another trial, which was an option, well, we could dismiss this without, or, uh, with, without, I'm sorry, with prejudice, meaning they could bring it back and try it another time. Nope. She said the only way to, to set this thing right is to dismiss the case without prejudice. It can't be brought back and, you know, retried. So what's going to happen with these January 6th prisoners? I mean, January 6th might have been a lot of things to a lot of people, says Robert Bridge, but he says another Boston Tea Party? No, it definitely was not. Social media was a light over the weekend showing one benign scene after another of the insurrectionists casually strolling through the Capitol building premises, exchanging pleasantries with on-duty police officers, 
even giving each other fist bumps. Now, would they have been doing that if this was, in fact, a violent insurrection? I mean, he includes some great uh, X or Twitter videos here that, that show you exactly what he's talking about. You don't have to take his word for it. But the revelations of the true nature of the event came to light as newly appointed House Speaker Mike Johnson released the security footage, which came as political manna from heaven for former President Donald Trump and other members of the Republican Party. Now, the Speaker of the House said in a prepared statement, truth and transparency are critical. This decision will provide millions of Americans, criminal defendants, public interest organizations, and the media an ability to see for themselves what happened that day rather than have to rely on the interpretation of a small group of government officials, and I might add, corrupt government officials. Democrats, however, who've milked the insurrectionist narrative for everything it's worth, predictively uh, chafed at the release, calling it a risk to national security. (laughs) Yeah, their security. Interestingly enough, New York Democrat uh, Representative Joseph Morrell, who sits on the Committee on House Administration, says it is unconscionable. That Speaker Johnson, one of Johnson's first official acts as steward of the institution is to endanger his colleagues, staff, visitors, and our country by allowing virtually unfettered access to sensitive capital security footage. That he is doing so over the strenuous objections of security professionals within the Capitol Police is outrageous. This is not transparency. This is dangerous and irresponsible. Yeah, it also shows you're a big, fat liar. But please, continue. (laughs) I know you just want to protect our democracy. (laughs) Okay. So for almost two years, Democrats who managed to cherry-pick the most suggestive scenes of the footage portrayed January 6th as everything from another September 11th to a second Pearl Harbor. Oh, yes, they did. And we have the receipts. Last year, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the photogenic member of the Democrats' radical progressive wing, was shown visibly upset after having to, quote, relive the events of the Capitol riot. I'm so angry, she sobbed, rubbing her forehead, having to relive that footage. I know it's not just me. This is everyone. These attacks killed people, traumatized people. And for any of you right-winger Trump loyalists, he sent his own people to jail and promised his own people that he would pardon them. Now, the inconvenient truth, of course, is that only one person was killed on the day of the Capitol riot. That was an unarmed Air Force veteran and avid Trump supporter, Ashley Babbitt, who was shot by a Capitol Police officer. Well, now Republicans are demanding justice to be served. They're demanding the incarcerated protesters be immediately set free. And just like that, the J6 Committee's violent insurrection narrative has crumbled. That's what Charlie Kirk mentioned over Twitter. The Capitol Police facilitated the protesters' passage through the building. The vast majority of Jan Sixers, or J6ers rather, should be immediately released. But with Democrats still in control of Washington, D.C., along with the FBI, the Justice Department, and other administrative offices, the Republicans will have to wait until, why does this say November 4th? Huh, possibly longer if they lose their White House bid before any real justice is meted out. Okay, we're talking November 4th next year. Meanwhile, federal officials have said there is no evidence that law enforcement officials helped coordinate the attacks. Not even the guy flashing his badge at the camera as he's dressed as a Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, there's no way they were a part of this. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, whatever, whatever the case may be, 
These fresh revelations were a silver lining in a poop storm that's been following Donald Trump, who hopes to win back the White House next November, despite multiple legal woes. Look, all I know is there are an awful lot of people who walked through the Capitol building who are being hounded, still hundreds more, being sought by the FBI and by the Department of Justice. All those resources being used to round up people who walked through the building and did not believe that the election was so pure, so sacred, and so above reproach that they dared question it. I think that's the real crime. Their jailing, their prosecution is all about shutting up those of us who still don't believe that that 2020 election was really on the up and up. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really debated whether or not to even do a show today. And then I thought, you know what? There are some really great things I'd like to share, so... Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. But I want you to know, I could have taken today off, but instead, here I sit, sharing, you know, hopefully thought-provoking articles with you. By the way, if you want to access those articles, I have links in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. While you're there, click on the show notes, subscribe. There's a button at the bottom of the page. It'll ask you to put in your email, and I'll take it from there. So here's a bit of a quandary. What do you do when two people you really love and respect disagree? I know, it's even harder if they're they're actually fighting. It's like, oh, crap. I I love both of you, but I don't like to see you fighting. I'm looking at an article here. This uh, dropped into my inbox yesterday. It's from Paul Rosenberg, who you know is is one of my preferred writers and thinkers. I just, I love this guy's approach. I think he's got a lot of wisdom to share. I like the way he does it because he really, he's a big believer in pointing people toward the truth rather than leading them to it and rubbing their nose in it. You see, see the difference? So when I saw the headline, which says, I like Jordan Peterson, but he's wrong. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I'm going to have to find some courage. I like Jordan Peterson too. I don't think he's perfect. I know he's gone through some pretty difficult times, but that guy is a voice of reason. He is hugely influential. So I wanted to hear, why would Paul Rosenberg disagree with him? Now, Rosenberg says, anyone teaching young men to seek responsibility and meaning, he says, has a place near my heart, especially when he or she delivers their message in a humane way. And Professor Peterson certainly has done that at great personal cost. Nevertheless, he says, I'm hearing from young people asking me to address another part of his teaching that is impacting negatively upon them. After getting substantially the same report from multiple directions, he says, I feel compelled to write about it. And he says, the idea that I'm addressing is found in the first chapter of Peterson's 12 Rules book, which one of my correspondents describes this way, quote, I think his position can be very briefly summed up as hierarchy and status are biologically given, and one had better puff up one's status to not be dominated by others. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I was able to read through the chapter in question, which does convey this general message. The professor spends pages on lobsters, birds, and so on. Then he moves on to humans, outlining a Hobbesian war-of-all-against-all view of human life. 
He evokes evolution and paints status as an inevitable core of our lives, something we should embrace. And Paul Rosenberg says, so I'll explain as briefly as I can why the professor is wrong. Paul Rosenberg starts with, we are more. If we're to look to evolution, we should begin with what really matters, which is the development of the human prefrontal cortex, starting roughly two million years ago. The change of brain structure, not merely brain size, is the fundamental fact of both human evolution and human behavior. So if you examine ancient skulls at natural history museums, you'll see that the pre-2 million B.C. skulls, Homo habilis and prior, have ridges at the eyebrow level, and the skulls go directly backward from there. That is, they have no foreheads. But beginning at Homo erectus, the skulls rise in the front. They don't get substantially wider or longer. They rise in the front. That's precisely the space occupied by our prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is what allows us to do all of the advanced things we do. And just to establish our uniqueness, here's a passage from Carol P. Van Schyke's The Primate Origins of Human Nature. Quote, Even some non-cultural features of humans are sufficiently unique to leave our usual approaches to understanding their evolution close to, infect, to, close to ineffective. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg's point is, we are not only unique, but better. Why? Because chimps don't build hospitals and, and write symphonies. We do. And we oppose ourselves by embracing the model of lesser primates. Okay, that's a fair point. So Peterson's argument is that status and hierarchy are built into us. Therefore, we'll be healthier and better if we embrace them. Now, he says the first part of that's true. The second is false. It's the case that humans differentiate between high and low status presentations within a mere 40 milliseconds. Now, believe it or not, that's faster than conscious thought. So it's built into us. He's right. But also, Paul Rosenberg says there are a lot of things that we don't act upon. We become angry just as fast, but we don't immediately snap the, slap the snot out of someone who makes a stupid comment or who tries to shortchange us. And we don't do those things for a good reason. Cooperation is far more important to us than the animalistic satisfaction of punishing norms violations. He says humans, radically unlike animals, are hyper-cooperative. Without this, we couldn't have had the aforementioned hospitals and symphonies. In fact, without incredible levels of cooperation, we couldn't have bread, cars, central heat, books, medicine, and everything else that makes our lives worth living. And we became hyper-cooperative precisely by transcending animal-level impulses. Yeah, but the argument goes, we do have hierarchy and status. Humans are ruled by governments, which embody those things. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, that argument is correct, of course, but more or less everyone complains about rulership, generally on a daily basis. Such hierarchies restrain human progress rather than spawning it. This passage from Buckminster Fuller describes the situation quite well. Quote, If you take all the machinery in the world and dump it into the ocean, within months, more than half of all humanity will die, and within another six months, they'd almost all be gone. If you took all the politicians in the world and put them in a rocket and sent them to the moon, everyone would get along fine. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, we don't like to say such things openly, but we think them privately. 
On top of that, more or less every moral teacher of note has come up with a version of the golden rule, which functions entirely on self-reference to the absolute negation of hierarchy and status. Now, he says there's a lot more to say on this point, but I promise to be brief. Suffice it to say that hierarchy and status remain because we carry manipulable primate chemistry. But he says that's an unfortunate circumstance. That's not something we should be embracing. The path that carried us beyond, far beyond animal life, is that of cooperation and co-dominance. And so the facts that we should act upon are these. The dominant strategies of animals generate animal results. The cooperative strategies of humans generate human and humane results. He says we would be fools to cultivate the former, and we're not fools. By the way, I love this tone that he ends this this piece with. He says, I would much have preferred to discuss this with Professor Peterson over dinner, but I have no no real connections to the man, and thousands of people are simultaneously vying for his time. So he says, apologies, where do? See, that's that gentle touch that just, to me, makes, makes Paul such a genuine article. He's not trying to browbeat Jordan Peterson into submission or anybody else who disagrees. And I love the idea that, uh, you know, I would have preferred to just have this discussion in private. I do believe that uh, when you have beef <laughs> with somebody and you, you disagree with them, it shouldn't be the first resort to, well, I'm going to, you know, call the press and I'm going to go on social media. We're going to talk about this and bring it all out in the open. Some things are better not done in public. For instance, if you and your spouse are having a disagreement, do you think it'd be a good idea to call the neighbors over to sit and referee and watch and help you sort it out? No? Why? Well, because it's none of their business. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing. And when it comes to, you know, correcting something with someone else, I really believe the first and best approach is take it up with them personally, privately. Because that gives them the option to fix it without feeling the pressure that comes with, okay, the public knows this is bad optics. I got to do something here to try to make this look right. Now, that doesn't mean you should never go public. I would save that, though, for when you're being clearly rebuffed or otherwise ignored or or just, you know, kicked down the road. Well, let me transfer you to somebody who can help you and you sit on hold for 40 minutes. So I guess the, the takeaway is, first and foremost, go subscribe to Paul Rosenberg's newsletter. You should be getting his free man's perspective emails. I'm telling you, this guy has a great way of looking at stuff. You don't have to agree with it. I'm not saying you should agree with it or else you're a bad person. He just has a little bit different way of looking at things, and and I think he's right. And for him to step up and say, hey, when Jordan Peterson says we should be, you know, inflating our hierarchy and our status to make sure that nobody dominates us, he means well. But status poisons everything that we do and everything that we see because we're unconsciously, or maybe very consciously, comparing ourselves to other people, either to make sure, yep, I'm better than him or I'm better than her, or... I'm not as good. Either way, that's not a healthy attitude. All right, got to take a quick break. We've got a couple fun articles to share in the final segment. That is on the way next. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I limited how much, uh, first of all, I don't watch a lot of news. I'm just not interested in what the news media has to say. But I also limited uh, my time spent on uh, social media. And it was good. I was really grateful <laughs> to, to, to get a little bit of a break from everything. But I wanted to share something with you here real quick. A couple quick things. This is from a, a, an email I got from the Michael Herman's Substack earlier today. And I wanted to share this with you just because he, he talks about being sick of being manipulated into being angry. He says, I don't get upset any longer over the nightly news. In fact, he says, I refuse to. Antifa this, transgender that, culture wars, organized theft, running wild in California, crime becoming a rampant problem in our major cities, homeless growing out of control, fentanyl destroying lives. He says these are sideshows meant to inflame and distract, to move our emotions, to push us all in a direction, galvanize our consent. He says they can control any one of these problems overnight. You did see what San Francisco did before the Chinese delegation showed up last week. Yeah, overnight, all the homeless people were gone, and communist flags were flying on American streets. Isn't that something? So they make us all fear. This is what the news media is. It's a fear delivery system. And they put us into a state of fear so that they can manufacture consent. Sometimes that consent is allowing the press or the political class to to crucify Trump or to just simply narrow the scope of what you and I are allowed to talk about. But I love that idea of stop letting the news media make you angry. You really shouldn't (laughs) because it's somebody trying to manipulate you. So here's another one. Uh, Watching the news headlines, though, from this last week, of course, you know, Argentina has elected uh, Javier Millet. He was a populist, uh, Austro-libertarian, and I got to tell you, the guy, he's got a potty mouth, but he absolutely is unflappable in terms of uh, he's not going to bend the knee and say, boy, government is so great. Now, this doesn't mean, as some would tell you, that, you know, he, he prefers, you know, a state of chaos. It simply means... He wants limited government. Oh, and he doesn't like central banks. See, in the U.S., the reaction to uh, Javier Millet's election ranged from concerned curiosity on the part of the political establishment to enthusiastic celebration across the populist right, including, notably, some economic nationalists. Several renowned libertarians also brought attention to some of Millet's many flaws, such as his view on geopolitics. Now, Millet's libertarian skeptics will make many good points, And odds are a man with a legislature stacked against him isn't going to be able to address Argentina's many problems without some political backup. But still, there's a lot to admire about Millet's rise and plenty to learn from his campaign's bold, spirited rhetoric. And the reason for that is because our country is also in desperate need of a similar course change. Essentially what he's saying is we need our own Javier Millet in the U.S. Americans are in a tough spot right now. 80 years of inflationist monetary policy has has made life more expensive. And the heavy government involvement in many of the important sectors, including health care, housing, education, and energy, 
has made it harder for younger Americans to afford the same lifestyles as previous generations. Further, the Federal Reserve's manipulation of interest rates has left the American people heavily in debt, low on savings, and forced to weather the recurring nightmare of boom-bust cycle. Meanwhile, as Washington's decades of foreign intervention predictably blow up in its face, politicians are calling on the American people to fork over an ever-increasing amount of money in a futile effort to sustain an unchecked global empire. All while at home, the government remains unable or unwilling to protect the lives and properties of millions of Americans. Now, we may not yet have a poverty rate of over 40% or inflation north of 140% like Argentina, but we are on a trajectory that leads straight to that kind of economic ruin. And the point is, it doesn't have to be this way. We know the way out. That way involves dissolving the politicized monetary system and returning to a system of sound money, where prices and interest rates are determined by economic realities, not the whims of bureaucrats. That can only be achieved with the total abolishment of the cartelized banking system. Depoliticizing money and banking would put the American people back in control of their own money for the first time in over a century and bring an end to permanent inflation and ceaseless recessions. By the way, he also says we ought to end the disastrous policies, regulations, and departments that have constrained the supply of housing and energy and that have made education and health care services prohibitively expensive. Also, Connor O'Keefe says we need to put an end to Washington's drive for a globe-spanning empire. By the way, I think that that is going to happen. The globe-spanning empire is going to come to an end. The sad thing is it's not going to come to an end on our terms. Most likely we're going to see a coalition of countries, probably China and Russia, along with whoever wants to join them, putting the U.S. in its place. By the way, I don't say that with a sense of smug satisfaction. That's called reaping what you've sown. And individuals, as well as governments, are subject to the law of the harvest. Look, I'm not telling you this to depress you, but uh, our nation, our beloved nation, is, is very long overdue for a supreme humbling. And it's because of the political... Uh, the, the, the miscarriage of, of political will that's been going on here for, for a long, long time, but especially the last 100 years. So let's opt out of our own downfall, is essentially what Connor O'Keefe is saying. Javier Mille has demonstrated, as Ron Paul did before, it's possible to get millions of people to understand the necessity of radical liberty, meaning limit government in your lives, and to get them energized about it. And that's important because the political class is never going to give up any power unless a strong grassroots movement leaves them no choice. So Mille's victory reiterates, liberty can win, but it requires strong, uncompromising voices that can speak to regular people about their most pressing problems and offer a compelling vision of a freer, safer, and wealthier future. And he's right that it does start with uh, getting our monetary world in order. All right, one final article I want to share with you here. This is on the cult of safety, and this is from Thomas Buckley, published on the Brownstone Institute website. He says, it was the 1970s, dry cleaning bags lurked quietly behind couches, waiting patiently for the opportunity to pounce on the hapless child who dropped a Lego nearby. 
Unguarded five-gallon buckets stood brazenly in the middle of basement floors, hoping to entice their next drowning victim. Discarded refrigerators prowled the land, looking for unsuspecting eight-year-olds to gobble up. G.I. Joes and Barbies, with the help of their little owners, were making out everywhere. It's the 2020s. Now entire schools ban peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because one kid might have an allergy. Parents get visits from county protective services for letting their children play unsupervised in the park across the street. Jungle gyms are an endangered species. And third graders are taught not to impose cis-normative constructs, let alone behaviors, on anyone or anything. In other words, say the right pronouns. Now, the other odd things that the events described in the first paragraph, except the G.I. Joe one, were not actually happening on any grand scale. The sad thing is, the events in the second paragraph are. Now, admittedly, there were children, one assumes, who did manage to trap themselves inside random refrigerators, hence the televised public service announcements, seriously, such a 70s solution, asking the public to at least take the handle off the box before you heave it over an embankment or leave it in a burned lot in the Bronx. And admittedly, again, one assumes, a child somewhere somehow managed to get themselves tangled up in a dry cleaning bag. As to the bucket problem, well, that one's rather hard to fathom, but it must have happened at least once to spawn the lawsuit that forced manufacturers to put drowning warnings complete with a graphic depiction of an inept inept toddler on their buckets. Now, his point is, is simply this. He says, the cult of safety... Is, is in full swing. It's exploded. And the, and the process is being sold to us in the name of progress. You'll be safe and secure, but of course you'll never be completely secure because that would obviate the threat. But that empty life that you enjoy, you know, could be taken away on a whim. He says, it may seem like a bit of a leap to claim that the proposition that children should be warned to stop eating lead paint chips led inevitably to children asking people what their preferred pronouns are so as to avoid the semblance of giving offense. But the point here is that this type of incrementalism cannot be easily controlled once it's started. And this is one slippery slope, he says, on which a cuidado piso mojado sign is nowhere in sight. (laughs) I like it. Eh, Well, be safe out there. (laughs) Pun intended. And please check out my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. And if you're so inclined, feel free to hit the subscribe button. This is The Brian Hyde Show.